Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we are analyzing today is, who was the better general, Ulysses S. Grant or Robert E. Lee? Spoiler alert, it was Grant, and it's not even close. I will be spending most of this episode destroying the myth of Robert E. Lee because most people get this part of the equation wrong. Most historians, and the public in general, think that Grant was a great general, but just not as good as Lee. So, I don't have to convince you as much of Grant's incredible skills as a general, although I will do that later on. First, I have to show you why Robert E. Lee was not nearly as good as Grant. First argument is the easiest. Scoreboard. Grant won the war, and Lee lost. Isn't that the whole point? I know, I know, the defenders of Lee will say that Grant had superior numbers and soldiers and superior materials of war. So, the side with the superior numbers and materials always wins, right? Ask the British how that worked out in the American Revolution. Ask the U.S. or French how that worked out in Vietnam. And remember, the Confederacy was huge geographically. Grant conquered a much larger area than the British had to try to conquer in the American Revolution or the U.S. or French had to conquer in Vietnam. And even if you just limit the Confederacy to the area east of the Mississippi, it was still enormous and bigger than Vietnam or the 13 American colonies. Yet somehow Grant was able to do what the superpowers British, U.S., and French could not. And even though Grant had the advantage of numbers... Lee had the easier task, which brings me to my second argument. All Lee had to do was not lose. The South could win their independence by simply not losing. All the Confederacy needed was a stalemate, like playing for a tie in sports. But the Union side could only win the war by actually conquering the South. Lee's goal, avoiding losing, was much easier than Grant's objective of conquering the enemy. This was something that George Washington figured out in the Revolution. He just had to avoid losing and keep his army intact until the British finally had had enough and just wanted to give up. The same thing for Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. But Lee did not do this. He was unable to avoid losing. Why? Well, he made many strategic mistakes which directly led to the South's defeat. Number one... Lee kept attacking larger Union armies instead of remaining on the defensive. Number two, Lee focused on his beloved home state of Virginia instead of concerning himself with the overall Confederate cause and helping the military situation in other Confederate states. And number three, Lee kept trying to win outright victory with two invasions of the Union. He tried to win an outright military victory in September 1862 and was beaten at Antietam. He tried again in July of 1863 and met with disaster at Gettysburg. And now for my third argument. Lee had the easier position being on defense. It was so much easier being on the defensive than being the attacking army in the Civil War. Why was it easier on the defensive side? Rifled guns. Rifling is a set of grooves inside the barrel which makes a bullet spin. Rifling makes a bullet much more aerodynamic, accurate, and a soldier could hit a target much farther away. 
Although rifling was invented somewhere in the 1500s, it was very difficult to do and very expensive because it had to be done by hand. Rifling did not become practical until the mid-1800s. Another important factor was a new type of bullet. Prior to the mid-1800s, handguns and muskets shot a round ball. But in 1849, a French army officer named Claude Etienne Minier invented a conical-shaped projectile, which is the basic shape of bullets we are familiar with today. The bullet was named after him, but the pronunciation was changed in English, and Americans referred to it as the mini-ball. Besides being conical-shaped, the mini-ball also had a hollow base that expanded when fired, which greatly utilized the rifled grooves inside the barrel, causing the bullet to go much further and be much more accurate. This completely changed warfare tactics. A Civil War rifle was accurate somewhere between 300 and 400 yards. Some skilled marksmen could hit human targets at 500 yards or more. Before the Crimean War and the U.S. Civil War, most armies were using smoothbore muskets. That term, smoothbore, means no rifling inside the barrel of the gun. At the start of the Civil War, there were still a lot of smoothbore muskets being used by both North and South, but both sides quickly adopted rifles. Both sides understood the tremendous advantage of rifles compared to smoothbore muskets. Smoothbore muskets were only accurate for about 50 to 60 yards. That's why during the U.S. Revolution in that time period, armies would stand bunched together and fire at each other because the smoothbore muskets were so inaccurate that they needed to concentrate their fire to hit anything. The biggest drawback of smoothbore muskets was the limitation of hitting targets past 50 yards. Here's why that's important. It took approximately 15 to 20 seconds to reload a musket and fire it. These are estimates, but the goal of armies in that time was to have a soldier get off three shots per minute. So, an army on the defensive side had to wait until the attackers were approximately 50 to 60 yards away to take a meaningful shot. This was a problem since it took less than 15 seconds for an attacking soldier to run 50 yards. This meant that if you were in a fixed position, such as a trench or behind a wall, you and your fellow soldiers could shoot your musket once at the line of attacking soldiers, and then they would overrun your position before you could reload and fire another shot at the attackers. This drastically changed with rifled guns and the mini ball. If you were in a defensive position and you could accurately shoot the attackers 300 or more yards away, you could keep picking them off and reloading and keep shooting before they could get to your defensive lines. This meant that there was a good chance that none of the attacking soldiers would reach your defensive line. In short, this meant that the advantage was now greatly in favor of the army which was on defense and not the army doing the attacking. This was the key strategic factor of the Civil War. And guns became more accurate and more rapid firing after the Civil War. By World War I, the army and defense was in the far superior position, and that's why the Western Front was just a stalemate of trench warfare. Although tanks appeared towards the end of World War I, they were not very practical since they were slow and prone to breaking down. But by World War II, tanks were much better, and there were now modern air forces, and this made trench warfare obsolete and the advantage went back to the attacking forces. Okay, getting back to the subject of this episode, 
It was much better to be on the defensive in the Civil War. Point A, you could dig trenches or put up ramparts and shoot the attacking enemy from a relatively safe position with very little of your body being exposed to being shot. Point B, the attackers who were running at you could maybe get off one shot before they reached your line. The attackers did not want to stop in the middle of the battlefield where they would be completely exposed in order to reload their rifles, which took about 15 to 20 seconds, while being shot at by the defenders who were in secure trenches or behind a wall. So even if the defending army did not shoot all of the attackers, the few remaining would usually retreat because at that point they were so outnumbered by the defenders. Some military experts have set the ratio necessary for an attacking army in the 1860s as requiring three to four times the number of men and equipment than the defending army. Robert E. Lee never was outnumbered on such a scale. Even at the start of Grant's overland campaign in the spring of 1864, when Lee's army had been depleted by years of fighting, Lee still had about 60% the size of Grant's army. So when people talk about how the Confederate armies were greatly outnumbered, those Lee fans ignore that Lee had all the advantages of being on defense. And Lee himself proved how important it was to be on defense compared to being the attacking army. A perfect example of this is when Lee and the Army of North Virginia were on the offense at the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union Army was dug in along high ground while the Confederates tried to attack them for three days and the southern forces were soundly defeated. People who argue that Lee was such a genius failed to look at times like Gettysburg where he did not seem like such a military mastermind simply because he was doing the attacking and the Union troops were dug in on the defensive. Another factor favoring the defensive position in the Civil War was the terrain of Virginia. There were several major rivers, such as the Rappahannock, the York, and the James, which all run west to east. This meant that the attacking forces, the Union Army, had to cross those rivers. These natural barriers are good for the army on the defense because the attacking army had to build pontoon bridges or cross at fords, which were usually narrow. This was a slow process for an army to cross a significant river and would expose that attacking army to fire from the enemy. So let's go on to my fourth argument. Robert E. Lee did not learn from his own mistakes or even from his successes. Let's first examine his successes. The best example would be Fredericksburg. The Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia occurred on December 13, 1862. Confederate forces were safe in trenches on top of Maurice Heights, but Union General Ambrose Burnside kept attacking the Confederates even though they had high ground and were entrenched. This resulted in a complete rout of the Union forces. Lee should have learned from this, but he didn't. Seven months later, Lee makes the same mistake as Burnside when Lee tries to attack Duggan Union forces who had the high ground at Gettysburg. In fact, during the famous attack known as Pickett's Charge on the third day of Gettysburg, the Union troops were derisively yelling Fredericksburg at the attacking Confederates as the Union soldiers were dug in on top of Cemetery Ridge. Okay, so Lee did not learn from his success at Fredericksburg. Did he learn the hard way from one of his failures? The answer is no. 
Joe Johnston had been in command of the main Confederate army in Virginia in 1862. Johnston got seriously injured during a battle and was eventually replaced by Robert E. Lee, who gave the army its new name, the Army of Northern Virginia. There were a series of battles called the Seven Days Battles, wherein Lee tried to push the Union Army, commanded by the spineless George McClellan, away from the Confederate capital of Richmond. The last in that series of battles was at Malvern Hill on July 1, 1862. The Union troops were in a strong position, occupying the high ground and dug into trenches. They also had superior artillery on top of the hill which commanded the open fields in front of Malvern Hill. In spite of this commanding position by the Union troops, Lee ordered three frontal infantry assaults across hundreds of yards of open ground against entrenched Union soldiers on top of the hill supported by artillery. It was a terrible defeat for the Confederate forces who lost approximately 5,500 killed and wounded compared to Union casualties of approximately 3,000. The South could not afford losses of almost two times the amount of federal losses, especially when the South had so many less men to begin with. But Lee did not learn from his terrible mistake at Malvern Hill or his resounding victory at Fredericksburg, both which occurred in 1862. In 1863, he still foolishly attacked an entrenched army on high ground at Gettysburg. And he didn't have to attack the Union Army, known as the Army of the Potomac, at Gettysburg. As a matter of fact, his second-in-command at Gettysburg, General James Longstreet, urged Lee not to attack the Federal forces. Longstreet recommended to Lee that instead of attacking the Union Army in such a strong defensive position, that Lee should take his army south and get in between the Union Army and Washington, D.C. This way, the Confederates could select a strong defensive position of their own, like they had at Fredericksburg, and the Federals would have to attack the Southern forces because of the threat to Washington, D.C. Lee refused to listen to Longstreet and attacked at Gettysburg. His army was routed, and Lee lost the last possible chance to win the war. And now for my fifth argument. Lee had home field advantage. Now this breaks down into three sub-arguments. Sub-argument A is with regard to geographic information. Maps were terrible in those days. The maps had very little detail on them, just broad generalities. Military leaders need to know the location of every road, as well as every river, stream, hill, or mountain. But the Union generals in Virginia usually did not have any particulars about the local area. However, Robert E. Lee and the Army of North Virginia usually had soldiers who were from that area and knew where every hidden road, creek, or hill was located. And when Lee didn't have somebody in the Army who knew the area, the local civilians were certainly eager to help. A perfect example was at the Battle of Chancellorsville. This occurred in Northern Virginia over several days in May 1863. Lee wanted to send Stonewall Jackson with part of the Confederate Army around the flank of the Union Army. Obviously, Lee wanted to do this without the Union Army knowing about this movement of troops. Lee and Jackson received great help when a local man named Charles Welford told Stonewall Jackson about a forest road which Welford had recently opened to connect his furnace to a main road. This road was not on any maps, 
And better yet, Welford's son acted as a guide, taking Jackson and his troops down the crude road which some of the men characterized as no better than an animal trail, meaning that without that guide, the soldiers might not have been able to find their way through the forest. This resulted in Jackson leading his troops around the Union flank and attacking the exposed Federal flank in total surprise, which resulted in a rout of the Army of the Potomac. The Battle of Chancellorsville is considered Lee and Jackson's masterpiece. But would things have turned out so well if they were not on their home turf of Virginia, with locals like Charles Welford showing them a hidden road through the forest? That is a huge advantage which the attacking federal forces did not have. Sub-argument B about having home field advantage. Besides geographic information, the locals in Virginia supplied Lee's army with food for the soldiers and fodder for the animals, as well as other supplies. In contrast, the Union forces had to rely on long supply lines for everything the army needed, including food, fodder, ammunition, everything. Confederate cavalry and even some partisans could disrupt the Union supply lines by tearing up railroad tracks or blowing up bridges. And now, sub-argument C about the advantage of fighting on your own home turf. It's easier for a military leader to get soldiers to fight and even give their lives when they are defending their homes as compared to fighting for a political ideal. Lee and his officers did not have to remind their men that they were defending their homes and families. That's a much more powerful argument than arguing to Union troops that they were fighting to try to save a functioning democracy, which Lincoln referred to as the last best hope of Earth. Now for my sixth argument against Robert E. Lee. Lee fought against chumps. Yes, that's a military term. One reason why Lee looked so good until he faced Grant was that he was going up against terrible generals. Until the spring of 1864, he was facing inept generals on the Union side. Once Lee went head-to-head -head with Grant, Lee did not seem like such a prodigy. Let's take a look at the string of terrible generals on the Union side that Lee faced between 1862 and the end of 1863. It's a list of who's who's of bad generals. Irvin McDowell, George McClellan, John Pope, Ambrose Birdside, Joseph Hooker. By the way, Burnside, yes, it's true. That's where the term sideburns came from because he had these big, bushy sideburns. Anyway, Lee faced a decent general in George Meade who defeated him at Gettysburg. The problem with Meade is that he didn't follow up the victory at Gettysburg. The Potomac River was in flood and Lee could not cross to get back to Virginia. Lee's army was in a very weak condition and was pinned against the Potomac but Meade did not follow up and try to destroy Lee and win the war. Lincoln wrote a letter to General Meade on July 14, 1863, 11 days after the Battle of Gettysburg. Lincoln did not send the letter. Lincoln sometimes did this as a coping mechanism to vent his frustrations. However, the key part of this letter is very telling. He wrote, Again, my dear General, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with the other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. 
if you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the river when you can take with you very few more than two-thirds of the force you then had in hand? It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect you can now affect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I find that unsent letter so heartbreaking. The point is that a better general than Meade could have crushed Lee completely and ended the war in July of 1863. However, Lee survived because he was not facing a better federal commander like Grant or William Tecumseh Sherman or even Philip Sheridan. The biggest problem with all of the Union commanders in the Eastern Theater before Grant is that, after a big battle, they would disengage from Lee and allow Lee's army to recuperate. Lincoln understood this, and that's why he was so irritated with Meade after Gettysburg. Lincoln was also frustrated with General George McClellan after the Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862. Most military historians believe that just about any general other than McClellan would have destroyed Lee's army after Antietam. But McClellan did not follow and attack Lee as Lee retreated back to Virginia. Grant changed this approach to fighting, which allowed Lee to retrofit after large battles. In May 1864, Grant started his overland campaign. The first battle in that campaign was the Battle of the Wilderness. It was a brutal slugfest in terrible conditions with high casualties on both sides. After such a battle, all of Grant's predecessors would have pulled back from the area to regroup and allowed Lee some breathing room and time to recover. But not Grant, he continued forward. Lincoln understood that the Federal Army had to wear down the Confederates until they ran out of men to continue the fight. Lincoln told the people around him that he just needed to find a general who could face the awful arithmetic. He found that general in Grant. So this raises the question, are the fans of Robert E. Lee right that Grant was simply a butcher who carelessly expended thousands and thousands of lives of his soldiers? Not true. Actually, it was Lee, not Grant, who was responsible for the staggering losses of the Civil War. And by the way, to this day, the Civil War is still America's bloodiest war. Once Grant took command of the Union forces in Virginia and went head-to-head -head with Lee, Grant tried his best to have an open battle with the Army of Northern Virginia. But by 1864, Lee had finally grasped the advantages of the defensive. He understood that he would be crushed in an open fight. So Lee took fortified positions throughout the spring and summer of 1864 as Grant marched through Virginia. After each battle, Grant swung his army to try to get south of Lee's army, but Lee had the interior lines, and so he would beat Grant to each new place of contention. After several battles during this overland campaign, Lee dug in for a siege at Petersburg, just south of the Confederate capital of Richmond. Lee understood that the war was lost at this point. He had told his subordinates... We must destroy this army of Grant's before he gets to the James River. If he gets there, it will become a siege, and then it will be a mere question of time. Grant had gotten to the James River, and the siege of around Petersburg, Virginia began in mid-June 1864. Lee understood that his army could not survive this siege and that the war was lost, 
but he continued to fight. His admirers say that this showed his grit and determination, but in reality, all he did was greatly increase the casualty lists on both sides. If Lee knew that the war was lost by June 1864, he could have prevented possibly tens of thousands of deaths. So, who is really the butcher? Now let's give Lee the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that in the summer of 1864, Lee was still holding out hope that somehow the South could win the war. Once Lincoln was re-elected on November 8, 1864, it was clear that the South was going to lose. But Lee still held out until April 9, 1865. And because he kept the Army of Northern Virginia protecting Richmond, it meant that the war also continued in Tennessee, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Again, Lee's actions resulted in tens of thousands of needless deaths as well as tens of thousands of wounded and the utter destruction of so much of Lee's beloved South. And here's a little known fact. Lee lost more men in the war than Grant. Over the course of the war, approximately 15% of the armies commanded by Grant were killed or wounded in his major campaigns. However, Lee lost an average of 20% of his troops killed or wounded in his major campaigns, which, by the way, was far more than any other Civil War general. And it wasn't just a percentage basis. Lee also had more total casualties by total numbers. Throughout his command of the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee suffered 209,000 casualties. During that same time period, Grant commanded four different armies in three different theaters, the Mississippi Valley, Tennessee, and Virginia, and suffered 154,000 casualties. I am not saying that Robert E. Lee was not a very good general. He was, but he was elevated to genius status after the war. A lot of this has to do with the lost cause mythology. I addressed this in my episode about the cause of the Civil War being slavery. Without going into it all over again, after the war, the Southerners did not want to admit that they or their relatives or their ancestors fought for arguably the worst cause in history, the right to enslave other people. In this lost cause mythology, they talked about the gallantry and honor of the Confederate soldiers. And this myth needed somebody to blame and somebody to be the hero. Southerners blamed Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, for losing the war. But Robert E. Lee was raised up to sainthood. As Lee was portrayed as the ultimate example of Southern honor, dignity, and military expertise, his exploits became exaggerated and his failures were either ignored or explained away because of the long odds when he faced superior numbers. Lee's subordinate officers contributed to this glorification of Lee because it also reflected greatly on them. They were part of the gutty little army that held off the Union hordes for longer than anybody thought possible. Of course, the people that promote the lost cause myth and glorify Robert E. Lee have tried to sweep under the rug that he was a believer and practitioner of slavery. You can't separate the war from the reason for the war, which was slavery. In short, Lee fought to preserve slavery. And don't forget that the Army of Northern Virginia relied a lot on slave labor for much of its logistics. I'm betting that some of you listening to this podcast are saying, well, Lee's devotion to slavery was certainly a major character flaw, but that does not belong in a podcast about his military expertise. Wrong. 
Lee allowed his devotion to the slavery cause to interfere with military decisions. In October 1864, Lee sent a letter to Grant proposing an exchange of prisoners. Grant replied that he would agree on the condition that black soldiers be exchanged the same as white soldiers. Lee gave this telling reply. Negroes belonging to our citizens are not considered subjects of exchange and were not included in my proposition. To his credit, Grant refused the prisoner exchange unless blacks were included. So think about that. The South was desperate for men for their armies and needed the prisoner exchange far more than the federal forces did. But Lee chose to refuse Grant's offer to exchange prisoners because blacks would be included. The slavery issue was more important than military matters. And before anybody tries to correct me that Lee requested black soldiers for the Confederate Army, this did not occur until the last desperate weeks of the Confederacy. There was a law that got passed by the Confederate Congress on March 13, 1865, with just over three weeks left before Robert E. Lee surrendered. And by the way, that bill that was passed by the Confederate Congress did not stipulate that blacks who served in the Southern Army would be freed. I've spent most of this episode whittling away at the sanctified image of Robert E. Lee. Now let's talk about the greatness of Ulysses S. Grant. First argument in favor of Grant. He was successful in a variety of locations and terrains. As I said earlier, Lee had the advantages of fighting in his home state. The two times he took his army out of Virginia, he lost at Antietam in Maryland and got his butt kicked at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. On the other hand, Grant was successful all over. He won campaigns in Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Virginia. And Grant won on a lot of different types of terrain. Mountains in southeastern Tennessee, fields in Virginia, and swamps in Mississippi. His most brilliant campaign was probably against Vicksburg. At the beginning of the Civil War, Union strategists determined that they needed to gain control of the Mississippi River. This would isolate a large portion of the Confederacy, which was on the other side of the Mississippi. By late 1862, Union forces controlled most of the Mississippi River, except for a portion around Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Port Hudson, Louisiana. Vicksburg was the stronger position, and Union tacticians realized that if Vicksburg fell, Port Hudson would be untenable. It took Grant over six months to capture Vicksburg, but he did. It was so difficult because the city was on bluffs overlooking the Mississippi River and so could not be practically attacked from the riverside. And to the north of Vicksburg, the ground was very swampy and you could not get an army through there. Eventually, Grant came up with a brilliant plan whereby he attacked Vicksburg from the south and east. This meant that he temporarily cut off his supply line and lived off the land. The point is that Grant was very creative and won battles under incredibly diverse conditions and terrain. Second argument in favor of Grant, he was a better global strategist. Lee knew how to fight a single battle, but he ignored the war in general. When Vicksburg was under siege, Lee did nothing to relieve that siege. He would not sacrifice troops from his beloved Virginia, even though it would be best for the Southern cause overall. Grant was not only great at commanding an individual army, but also coordinating all of the Union forces. In March 1864, 
Grant went to Washington to receive his commission from Lincoln as lieutenant general in command of all the Union armies. Grant understood coordinated pressure. That's why, in the spring of 1864, he started his overland campaign where he essentially took command of the Army of the Potomac and invaded Virginia from the north. In April 1864, Grant transferred troops and created the Army of the James under General Benjamin Butler to attack Richmond from the southeast. And most importantly, Grant had Sherman's army attacking Atlanta. Grant understood what was critical to overall the success of the war, constant pressure on several fronts. Here's an example. In July of 1864, Lee sent a force to threaten Washington, D.C. He was hoping that Grant would take troops away from Petersburg and go and try to save Washington, D.C., but Grant refused to personally leave the siege lines around Petersburg. Instead, he sent a subordinate with troops to save Washington. Grant would not lessen the siege of Petersburg. He understood what was important and what wasn't. Even in the mid-19th century, Grant and his buddy Sherman understood what would be considered 20th century tactics of total war. Winning single engagements would not win a war. Grant and Sherman understood that they needed to crush the South's ability to fight. Lee was a poor strategist for the universal Southern cause. He could be brilliant in his tactics of a particular military engagement, but he could not see the larger situation. As I explained earlier, all Lee needed was a tie. He just had to avoid losing the war and the Confederacy would win its independence. But Lee never understood this. That is why he continued with his aggressive tactics, attacking the Union armies in the Seven Days Battles, the invasion of Maryland and the resulting Battle of Antietam, and the invasion of Pennsylvania and the disaster at Gettysburg. As a result of these offensive strategies, Lee lost a lot more soldiers than he would have if he just remained on the defensive. I gave you those numbers earlier about how he had lost more casualties than any other Civil War general. And as I explained earlier, he could not afford these casualties, and this is what resulted in the Confederacy losing the war. Third argument in favor of Grant. He brushed off setbacks and moved forward. In April of 1862, there was a two-day very bloody battle at Shiloh. Grant got his butt kicked on the first day, but he was able to hold on. On the night after that terrible first day, his friend General Sherman approached Grant and stated, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant replied, yes, lick him tomorrow, though. That sums up his whole attitude. And of course, he did defeat the Confederates on the second day of the Battle of Shiloh. As I explained earlier, all prior Union generals against Lee turned around and regrouped for months, but not Grant. Once he started the Overland Campaign in the spring of 1864, Grant never let Lee get away. He kept contact with Lee's army. Earlier, I mentioned the Battle of the Wilderness, which was the first big battle of that Overland Campaign in the spring of 1864. Although it was gruesome, Grant did not lose his nerve. After the Battle of the Wilderness, Grant asked a journalist to give a message to Lincoln. If you see the president, tell him from me that whatever happens, there will be no turning back. Another great and similar quote came after the second major battle of the Overland Campaign, which was the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Grant sent a message to Lincoln. 
I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. See, one problem is that all prior commanders were in awe of the legend of Robert E. Lee. Grant was not. At the Battle of the Wilderness, Grant's subordinates were worrying about what Lee would do next. Grant lost his patience with his subordinates. Oh, I am heartily tired of hearing about what Lee is going to do. Some of you always seem to think he is suddenly going to turn a double somersault and land in our rear and on both of our flanks at the same time. Go back to your command and try to think what we are going to do ourselves instead of what Lee is going to do. That right there is what made Grant great. He understood that the Union was in the offensive position and to win the war, he would have to keep going forward and conquer the enemy. Fourth argument in favor of Grant would be simply his impressive record. Not only did Grant win many battles, he's the only general in the Civil War to capture, in mass, three entire armies. The first was at Fort Donelson in February 1862. Confederate General Buckner, who was a friend of Grant's from West Point, asked for terms for surrender. Grant's famous response... No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. More than 12,000 soldiers surrendered. The second army Grant captured was at Vicksburg, which I described earlier. More than 29,000 soldiers surrendered. And most significantly was the third army that Grant captured. At Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered his entire army, and this essentially ended the Civil War. That's it. Case closed. Drop the mic. Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. If you're listening on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple, which allows for ratings, I'd appreciate a five-star rating. Ratings and likes greatly help with the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. That's why they are important. Please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Word of mouth helps increase my audience. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links to my podcast episodes, as well as fun items for all history geeks like this date in history, book recommendations, historical sound bites, photos of some of the subjects of certain episodes, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.